Welcome to episode number 84 of the Inspirational Athletes Podcast here on the Always Lancaster Podcast Network. I'm your host, John Walk, sports reporter for LNP Newspaper and LancasterOnline.com, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. On this week's show is guest Andrew Yoder. Andrew is a 2008 Hempfield alum. He's now making a living um, locally in athletics through being a local triathlon coach through his Yoder performance uh, business. And he's a competitor himself in Ironman and triathlon races throughout the year. I think it's just a really uh, interesting conversation just as far as the 30 plus athletes that he's coaching, how he goes about developing different um, training techniques for each of those athletes, both physically, mentally, and nutritionally, and then trying to incorporate also being a businessman while also training for races himself. And he's learned a lot from his own career, just as far as making mistakes and learning from them and getting better as a person, both on the court, on the course and mentally. And, uh, we also just kind of chat about the intricacies of what goes into a triathlon, just as far as how you approach the different three different stages and the transition area, just little things that you wouldn't think of otherwise. Um, I never knew about triathlons until I attended my first one at Mount Gretna about a month ago where Andrew had about 20 or so competitors competing there on that day. And they ended up doing really well. I can feel free to hop on the Google machine or I should have the link up with this podcast on LexterOnline.com. But anyways, it's been a pleasure getting to know Andrew. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation. One last programming note. If you guys like what you hear, what you hear today, feel free to subscribe by searching Always Lancaster Inspirational Athletes on iTunes and Google Play. All right. With all that out of the way, on to our conversation with Andrew Yoder. Enjoy. All right. So where to start with you, man? Uh, give me an idea just as far as the, the upbringing. And obviously, you're a Hempfield grad, but did you grow up in Lannisville um, your whole life? Do you have any brothers or sisters? I grew up in Mannheim, um, and I moved to Hempfield when I was in fourth grade. Uh, and I came from a swim background, so I swam... And we call it club swimming. I swam for Lancaster Aquatic Club, and I came up uh, through that system. And then I swam for Hempfield High School through my junior year. I was introduced to triathlon when I was 11. I did the Lancaster YMCA triathlon up at Speedwell Forge. Okay. I did a relay with uh, Mark and Connie Buckwater. And I did it the following year, and then the third year I did it, I decided to do a sprint triathlon the week after. When you're, if you're, so 11 years old is your first triathlon. Yeah. Were you the youngest competitor there? I was, and I did the swim, okay. only the swim. Oh, all right. Yeah, so I had Mark did the bike and Connie did the run. Because I didn't know if that's unusual to see youngsters. Um, it was unusual, and I was intimidated. I remember <laughs> there was this lady who, before the start, was like, I'll take you under my wing. And they, the gun went off, and all of a sudden, like, she swam over me. And I realized it was everyone for themselves. And so it was really interesting to kind of... Uh, witnessed that, but I had a blast. It was very, very fun. Did you play other than swimming? Did you do any like affiliated high school sports or is that it? I ran cross country through junior year. Yeah. Okay. So cross country was in the fall. Um, swimming was in the winter and then I shifted focus to triathlon. In and forgive spring. me for being ignorant of this. Cause usually it's just been a crazy, uh, handful of days for me. Usually I have more time just to kind of prep for this. Otherwise I probably would have known off the top of my head, but as far as cross country and swimming, did you do anything? Special there in the postseason as far as leagues, districts, states, or anything like that? No, just districts in both uh, swimming and running. I had dual focus. So I I was somewhat in, but not fully in. So my commitment was spread between both uh, like high school sports and then triathlon. 
and but my heart was in triathlon. So I never gave full attention to say trying to make a run at states mm-hmm. in both swimming mm-hmm. and cross country. They're both such fine detail sports, especially swimming. Um, there's so many components that if you focus on that, it, it leads to success in like in the higher level competitions. And I never fully gave that attention. I gave that attention to the components of triathlon. And people who know you now look at you as this accomplished like Ironman triathlon coach, uh, uh, Ironman competitor triathlon coach. You run your own uh, performance business and this and that. So that's probably thinking, oh, yeah, you probably, you know, went to college and all that. But after high school, you didn't go to college. You became, I guess, what a was a professional competitor right out right out of high school, I guess, as far as triathlons or Ironmans. Yeah. So. As far as the arc of my athletic career, I've gotten stronger the older I've gotten. So I'm a better swimmer than I was in high school. I'm a better runner than I was in high school. And fortunately, I had this genetic ability to ride well. And the riding has always been what has carried me through these races. Mm. Um, and I started riding when I was 14. And by the time I was 17, I'd earned my pro card. And I was just a junior in, um, in high school. That uh, the reason I went pro was because it wasn't for the money at that time. It was because I simply got to a level in age group racing where it was no longer competitive. Uh, I was winning all regional races, and it was time to step up and see what I had against the professionals. And it was nothing to do with like I'm going to do this until I'm 40 years old. It was I want to race fast guys, Mm. and I loved it, and I did that um, 17, 18, and then. I made the decision after my senior year to go uh, full time into it and to try to make a career out of it. And uh, what, what does that consist of to go full time? Like, are you still living at home? Are you making money off of sponsorships? What does that look so like? So at that time, I the first winter I spent in Austin. So I I went to a warmer climate hmm. and I trained. I was able to train outside. And then when the season 2019, 2009 season rolled around, which was my first full year of professional racing, I, um, I felt like I had a jump start from that, from that winter of training. And, um, and then I would split my time between here and Boulder in the summer. Mm. So Boulder had the altitude. It was simply like the mecca of triathlon. Um, looking back at it, it's not. But as a young athlete, I was very much... How do, you, how do you make a living? Like, how are you feeding yourself? Where does that money come from? So you're making it through races, you're making it through sponsorship. So every race that I would do, I would have a prize purse. And you would have uh, sponsors that would provide bonuses, bonus structure on top of that. So if you did well, if you came, say, top five, you can make a really good money. But the problem is that it's a very top-heavy sport. So the minute you <laughs> slip below top five, it's, it's pennies. Um, and so, and you have to be very consistent because sponsorship is very cutthroat. Mm-hmm. If you're not consistent or you get injury or you don't become relevant where you can't sell a product for a sponsor, mm-hmm. they're quick to drop you. And just to kind of give people an idea of what you're doing today, um, I'll get on the coaching side here in a bit, but you yourself as a competitor, um, let's go 2017 calendar. What does that look like for you as a competitor? Well, 2017, I... Um, I raced three times. So I had raced uh, down in Florida. I was 12th at the San Anthony's Triathlon. And then in uh, June, I came second at Ironman 70.3 Raleigh, and then fifth at Ironman 70.3 Eagleman. Then I was in an accident in July, uh, right. three days before Ironman Lake Placid. And that's put me out for 12 months until this year. Um, so I'm building back 
and my return to racing will be this if, summer. If that accident in July didn't happen, like how many races, like uh, your your top competitors that you're going against, how many Ironman competitions do you think you typically do in a year? Like five, six? Full distance Ironman, two. Uh, they will typically do a spring race and then either do Kona, which is in October. What is Kona? Is that a track? It's Ironman okay. Hawaii, which is our world championship race. And that's the biggest race in the sport. I was going to ask you that next. So what, like, it's our what's Wimbledon. The, what the, or the Super Bowl, I guess, yeah. per se, as far as that. How, how many times have you competed in that so far in your career? I had never done an Ironman. <laughs> yeah, Lake Placid was supposed to be my first Ironman. Okay. Um, and then the coaching side of it, because it's like people are, wow, only three races. How in the world do you make a living off three? Well, you're a local triathlon coach um, now called, I guess, Yoder Performance. Um, when when do you kind of make that leap as far as saying, okay, I think I want to do this, start my own business, be a coach? How does that work? Well, I never wanted to be a coach. Oh, really? Uh, right. It never crossed my mind. And the beauty of it is it happened so naturally. I was advising a few of my friends who were racing professionally, mm. and I enjoyed it. I liked the interaction I had, the feedback they gave me, how I had to modify, find a way to get them faster. At already, they were at already at a high level. So I had to be creative and use my experience and what I've gone through in the sport to, to help others. And three years ago, I decided I wanted to start a local squad Mm. and no one knew I was coaching. No, I had no um, coaching qualifications other than the fact that I'd been in the sport for almost 15 years. And I had a few local athletes who trusted me early on. And what I did was I gave all my time and effort into those few athletes. I didn't worry about seeking a bigger team or getting more people. What I did was I made the most of who I had. Mm. And what it did was it organically spread and to, to more people. The word got around that, of the work that I was doing and the improvement that people were having. And from there, it just sparked. Um, and now I have a local squad. I have remote athletes all over the country um, from, from first-timer to professional. And uh, each person is very unique, offers a different, ch- different challenge. Right. Um, but <clears throat> there was times in my career where I, I wasn't sure what I was doing, like with the sport, I was, I was struggling with an injury or I had a bad race and I was thinking, is this all worth it Mm. with the coaching component? I now see it's all worth it because I feel like I've had such a unique experience in the sport and I have a lot of knowledge and a lot of, um, perspective that I can now give it back to others. And I'll delve into that in a little bit, just as far as the coaching side. Um, but I kind of want to touch on one more thing as far as, uh, to give us an example, um, let's say you're, your group that you're training right now, what, what's the next race that they're training for? How many people does that consist of? How often are you training? Where is that happening? So everyone has an individual schedule. So it very rarely does more than five people do the same race. And, um, I'm coaching 35 people. So that gives you an idea of the scope. The next biggest race we have is age group nationals in Cleveland, which is in August. And we'll have 15, 20 people racing that. Um, but I have four athletes racing Ironman 70.3 Syracuse. 70.3 means half Ironman. So it's the brand Ironman, and then the 70.3 is the half. Of, so, this, of this, sorry to cut you off, but of those folks that you mentioned, like how many are local, how many, you also do remote coaching too. I would say it's split uh, 60-40, 60 
percent local, forty percent regional. And remote. if everybody's on an individual schedule, then um, obviously they don't all practice together. So that has to be a lot of flexibility on your end. Um, I'm just wondering, like a Monday through Friday schedule, what what does that consist of? Is it just all over the place as far as where you're meeting these folks and so what times? Each athlete has their own individual program that I give them through a platform called Training Peaks, and each day is specific to them. If they can do, if they're local and they can do a group session, then I incorporate into the into the program. But for some people, it's not. It doesn't make sense for them to do a group session, so I won't include it, even if they're local. Um, so what I do is I hold swimming, um, I swim squad at FNM every Monday, Wednesday, Friday morning. And then I offer bike run sessions throughout the week, probably twice a week. And those are in the evenings. Usually. Those are usually in the evenings or sometimes in the morning. I have to work around everyone that I'm coaching locally has jobs. They have family. Right. So it's, it's very much a morning evening thing. Um, but those are only group sessions. Those are the times that I see them in person. Their training, the majority of their training is on their own. Mm. They have to be accountable to themselves. They have to be motivated um, to get it done. So if the swim sessions, for instance, just for your group sessions, are Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and the bike rides you offer probably Tuesday and Thursday evenings, I imagine there's a lot of work that's going on in between those dead times um, throughout the day. Like, I guess that's when a lot of your remote work happens, or you're checking in with your other clients and how they're doing. Are you also getting your uh, fitness in your cardio in as well, or how's that work? Yeah, so it's... It's, it's nonstop um, between local and remote. So with remote athletes, most of it's through email or, or texting, mm. and I'll just simply just check in. So if I don't, I'm constantly saying, how are you feeling? How is your energy? Because um, this allows me to kind of get, if I can't see them in person and I can't read body language or I can't ask strategic questions mm. to get a response on how, uh, what their level of their fatigue is, then I need to like probe through communication. And the way I do it with remote athletes is just asking things. And, and typically if someone's good, they'll just brief answer. Uh, if someone's got something going on, then they'll be a novel. Mm -hmm. And then it's my job to adjust and modify the program off of that. And that, like I have said in the past, that I find that that's real coaching. Right. It's more than just a black and white generic program. It's so much more than that. It's it's people. It's athlete management. Do you? Uh, I don't. How have you kind of gone about developing? If you have thirty to whatever thirty to forty athletes that you're training, it's it's a different routine. How do you know what is right for one athlete and like as far as age group or, or female, male, what they're trying to accomplish? Um, I guess eventually I'm getting at like how do you kind of how have you learned to develop these things over the course of your your career? Because you, you've been coached by some of the best best triathlon coaches so i'm just kind of curious of of what you've learned and how you've been able to apply that as a coach so yeah i've been very fortunate to have worked with not only some of the best triathlon coaches i think some of the best coaches in sport um like great leaders mm -hmm. and i've learned methods from them something's good something's bad and i've taken all of that and developed my own methodology and that methodology stays consistent and is sound, regardless of who, what gender, what ability level, it's how you tailor it to that person. And I will scale it up or down based on volume or intensity, based on injury, based on background. The answer to that is it depends. Each person is so individual, I can't tell you, like I would have to do a thorough rundown of someone and, and then spit out a program. I can't just say this is gonna be like 
XYZ. It's going to be very much individual, very custom. And I don't know what that program is going to be until I meet that individual, if that makes sense. Yeah. um, Some of the behind the scenes things I found interesting when I met you a month ago at that race. Uh, Let's say, for instance, as far as the the swimming goes, uh, uh, the... The, the three stages of a triathlon um, initially start out swimming. Um, there's a rule just as far as when and when you can't use the, the body suits, just as far as like temperatures of water. How does that go? So there's regulations uh, based on the federation. So USA Trioth- Triathlon has a, uh, a swim cutoff for wetsuit or non-wetsuit. So if it's below, say, 76 degrees, you, you can wear a wetsuit. If it's hmm. above 76, you cannot wear a wetsuit. Um, so that depends on the course and, and the body of water. Um, so at Mount Gretna, it was uh, mm-hmm. below 76, so everyone was allowed to wear a wetsuit. If it had been above 76, no wetsuit. Right, and then when you come out of the water, <clears throat> there's little things that you don't even really think about that, that I didn't think about until I saw that, just as far as, okay, when you're transitioning, whether it be from the water to the bike, from the bike to running, um, is there certain things, let's say even when, when you're competing, your area that you're going back to as far as changing gear and getting to the next level, do you have certain little things that you do to make sure you cut? Because ultimately you're trying to do this as fast as can, but but make sure you're doing it right. Can you just kind of walk me through that process? So everyone has their own little routine and quirks, and I always try to embrace those, the athletes that I coach. But the number one thing I try to, to tell them is to simplify. So declutter and um, to go over and over and over the paths that they're going to take through transition. So when they're exiting the water, how are they going to go to their bike? When they're at their bike, what what process are they going through to get that bike out onto the mount area? So they know exactly how they get to the bike. They know how to get to the the the, the, the area transition where they leave on the bike, and it's the minimal time that it takes to get there. So a lot of people will have they'll just have ex- accessories that are not needed. And so what I've done is I've said, this is how you declutter. Um, this is how you set up your transition area so that you can save time. Because transition area is the fourth component. You, mm-hmm. If you save time, it's free time. And most people don't realize that and kind of are very like casual in transition. It should be, it should be fast. It should be efficient. And uh, you should be in and out. No issues, no mistakes. Can you give me an idea of, of accessories that, that aren't good that, that you try to declutter? Like, what do you mean by that? It's, it's almost like people will, will leave like bottles, they'll leave clothes, they'll have their helmet um, like face down, they'll have their sunglasses, they'll have their sunglasses on the ground but their helmet on their bike. Whereas you can do little things like having your sunglasses in your helmet. So when you get to your bike, it's sunglasses on, helmet on, and then you leave. You can put your bike shoes like into your clips already instead of putting them on mm. at the ground and then running out with your shoes on. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more about like spacing everything out what what do you actually need for riding? You need right. your shoes, you need your sunglasses, you need your helmet. Usually Bottles Nutrition is already on the bike. That's all you need. You'd be surprised how much other things people kinda, have. Kind of staying on this theme, just as far as little things people might not think about. Um, the bike the bike, bike course, uh, just as far as, uh, let's say if it's, why, why is it bad? Because when I was out with you in Mount Gretna, it was pouring all day. It had already been pouring probably for 24 hours anyway. You had kind of mentioned as far as it's good that it's already been raining um, because you don't want to be on the bike course and then it starts raining. Why is that? Because the oil from the road will rise and it makes it super slick. So if it's going to rain, you want it to rain for a while so it washes all debris and the oil off the road. 
And then there's certain areas on the road, if it's raining, like that you want to make sure you're at a certain point on the road, um, just as far as being the fastest, I guess. Yeah, any white or uh, yellow lines on the road will be slick. Any like manhole covers, like metal objects that could take an You had mentioned down. too, just as far as staying on top of the road, like you don't want to go down in the tire grooves or something, because that's where like the water sits or... Yeah, so if there's a lot of rain, water will sip in, will will sit in certain parts of the road, and you don't know how the depth of that mm-hmm. water is. That could be a, like a big puddle, or it can be a shallow puddle. So I always say, like, you essentially will ride, and those are typically made by like just cars over time. So you want to sit mm-hmm. more on like the drier mm-hmm. sections of the road, so you know where you're going, and also there's less resistance when and you're riding. Let's say a dry course compared to a wet course, you're going to race that differently. How so? You will. So on a wet course, you'll lower your tire pressure. Um, so there's, there's better traction. Oh. Um, and then you will, you have to, if you corner correctly, there's not a huge difference. If you distribute your weight correctly, um, the only difference is slowing down a bit earlier before you hit the turn. Mm. Um, but most people get in their heads and think that <laughs> wet conditions is going to throw them off completely. And then you get out there and you realize it's not that bad. Right. And, um, and I, I always encourage my athletes to train in the rain uh, because you never know when it's going to rain on race day. So the more that they can corner, the more they go downhill in wet conditions, in hard conditions and conditions that give them anxiety or stress, the less stress they're going to have on race day. So it's interesting too, kind of one last thing, the running portion of it, because um, we all run differently. We all have our own different types of forms. Uh, one thing that kind of stood out that you had mentioned to me, just as far as uh, taking shorter strides versus longer strides, which one's better there and why? Or at least that you tell your athletes as a coach, I guess. <laughs> so I, I prioritize high cadence. Um, so shorter stride, higher stride rate. And that's typically across the board more efficient for most people and especially when you come off the bike most times people's perceived exertion is off so they're going from riding to running and they they don't really have a feel for their stride yet Mm. so all i tell them to focus on is their stride rate like turn it over turn it over turn over it's those simple cues that they can then and then as they're turning it over and they're working through the first few minutes of the run they'll start to open up and then they'll find their stride but i prioritize not over striding and the way you can do that is by simply thinking about things that encourage a high stride rate which is i always say visualize the ground as like a hot plate where you get your foot off the ground really quickly or your arm swing is directly correlated to your stride rate so if you have a compact tight arm swing it's also going to be a fast turnover and something about uh if you have a longer stride rate you're you're reaching your foot out your your feet aren't under you you want to you want to have your body on top of your feet per se you want to land the shorter stride i guess correct you want to land essentially underneath your body um you don't you don't want to land out Um, because that just takes more time when you land out than to then bring your body over top of that. Right. And then let's say once you get your stride down, you got to think about your arms. How are you swinging or pumping your arms? Um, Because some people like to get the side-to-side motion. I've since learned that's not good. (laughs) Yeah, so again, everyone is an individual. So it's not a one-fix-all solution. And I I don't try to, like, reinvent the wheel with these people. So they all have their 
their technique and their form, but there's things you can focus on that can sometimes lead to more efficient running. And a lot of times I, I, I try to get people to use their hands as like for rhythm. Mm. So use your hands as you're running. Think about using your pivoting with your hands and your elbows instead of your shoulders. Because if people start to pivot with their shoulder, then what happens is they actually get a lot of excessive movement up top, which is inefficient. Um, so more elbow hand movement and, and, and circular. So it's a good way of finding rhythm when you're tired. The key with triathlon running is it's such a strength sport because it typically happens, if you're talking about a half Ironman or an Ironman, you're talking about four to five hours or eight to nine hours into a race. Mm. Like, I don't care what you look like. It's about <laughs> how well you can turn it over, how strong yeah. you are, how efficient you are, and then how mentally tough you are. And so the way I incorporate run training is very much how do we get you fresh when you start the run? Mm. So a lot of pri- a priority is on swim and bike training mm. because you can be a world-class runner, and, and I've seen it in triathlon, and they can't run off the bike because mm. they're so gassed by the time they get there. So the little cues about using your hands, about shorter stride rate, these are all things that can, you can control that allows you to run efficiently when you're hours and hours and hours into a race. I hope this isn't boring to people because I just find it fascinating. I, I run to stay in shape. I just did a half marathon like a month ago. You, and since I, I had met you at Mount Gretna and the, the pumping the hand, like what do you mean by pumping the hands as opposed to using your elbows or shoulders? Uh, is it like pointing your, your wrist down towards the ground as you pump your, your arm down towards that way? Or what do you mean by that? So first it's important to keep your your hands off your center line. So you never want to cross your center line because then typically that will create a counterbalance. Um, How you move your hands is typically you want to do it more of a circular motion in front of your body. So you don't want to go like side to side. You don't want to go forward to backward like a sprinter. It's more of a compact circular motion that goes along with your stride rate. Hmm. Okay. You had uh, out in the course, one of your runners, right after he got off the bike, he was uh, starting to run. You had mentioned, and I'd never asked you about this, as far as uh, eyes up or something along those, and he had his head down, he picks his head up, and he said, eyes up, not head up, eyes up. Why, why is that important? What, what helps there? So he was looking at the ground, and I wanted him to look out. When I said he'd look out, he lifted his head up, which made him really upright. So mm. the key for him was to have his head in line with his, the rest of his body, but not pull up his chin where the fact that he starts to lean back and arches back and then start to kind of sit back. Right. I was trying to get him to have more of a, a proper lean, which was more from like the ankles. And the way you can do that is essentially get his body in the right position by having him look out like 10 meters. But that means with your eyes, not with your head. So I hope so, we've, we've done a good job of kind of painting the picture of, okay, here's a lot of the physical aspects that you're yeah. coaching. We haven't hit on the mental side yet because that's probably half the battle on a race, if not more. Um, I would say and, it's almost all of it. Okay. And, I, and we can hit on on you as an athlete too because I know you've struggled with that. But I'm curious as far as like you, that's something as a coach, it's more difficult to, to teach your, your athletes just as far as being mentally strong. How do you kind of go about because I don't know if I'm just thinking of the uh, – the, the gal who you said, and you know, she's, she's in her, her, her head a lot during a race. Like, how do you kind of go about kind of keeping your athletes even keel and staying out of their head? Or, or what are some te- techniques that you've taught them? So again, every athlete is different. And how I approach that athlete is dependent on like their psychological profile. 
And the first thing for me is to understand them as a person, understand their triggers, um, what gives them stress, what gives them anxiety in a race. And then we go about addressing that behind the scenes. And what I do is I try to incorporate things in training that will stress them. And we, and we work on self-dialogue in those situations. So if I put them in a situation in training that sparks a certain type of stress, then we say this is how we deal with it. Mm. And then we do deal with it over and over and over and over until it becomes subconscious reaction. Mm. So in a race when they hit a, hit a very difficult point or there's something that stresses them out, like, something, like Mount Gretna is a great <clears throat> example, the rain may stress someone out. So in training, you would have that person train in the rain, and you would have that person do a lot of descending and a lot of cornering in the rain mm. until it was comfortable for them. Um, but it's always evolving. There's always something that can be right. worked on. Um, and how I address different people is, is also very different. So some, some things make people like they're fine, and others will unravel in a situation in a race. And you kind of had that experience as you're unraveling in the mental part as far as yourself being a competitor. Um, and I didn't get a chance to really ask you too much about that yet. I'm kind of curious if you can kind of unpack that for me a little bit. Like, when did you come to the realization that that's an area that you struggled with? Well, it took me a long time to have that self-awareness. And that's the first step with everyone is to understand what you're thinking and that this, this chatter that you're having is real but it's not who you are and you can deal with it and it'll always be there. So I know, like I know my triggers and I know they're always going to be there. It's how I manage them and how I deal with them. There's this like, you don't want to be ignorant to them and they come around and and you just, you unfold, you have to be able to manage it. And so for me, the biggest thing for me was in my career was pressure, um, pressure and then proving both are uncontrollable and both. I can't, there's nothing I can do. It's all based on other people's perception mm. of what I'm doing. And it wasn't until I realized to look at more at more constructively and look at it more from a like improvement standpoint instead of proving that I was able to make progress. And um, so I understand for me, I know I have very specific times in a race or very specific times in training that I will struggle, that my like mind chatter is through the roof and I know how to readjust, mm. but it took me almost 10 years to get to that point, to have that perspective. Oh. Um, but the great thing is that, that I can see it in my athletes. So by me going through the ringer with like all of these problems, having all these experiences, and, and, and I would say having a lot of failure and a lot of struggle, I can see it in every athlete that I coach and I can help them not avoid it, but like, to find a way to deal with it and to move forward. Anyone who's listened to this so far can probably tell you're very even keel. You're not too high. You're not too low. You're kind of just on the same level across the board. Where does that trait of you come from? I learned a lot from, from my coaches and the, the one thing I always liked that, 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 that to kind of describe them is that they wouldn't talk much, but when they talked, you'd listen because it meant something. So I would, I'm always with my coaching, I don't try to fill the gaps with conversation or like good job or well done or like when I give an order or I say, I give a feedback, it needs to mean something. Mm. And triathlon is so up and down that if I'm yelling or if I'm really quiet, 
it doesn't help an athlete. Like if I'm in the face of an athlete and I'm yelling at them, I don't think that's productive coaching. I think you have to be very neutral. You have to be very safe in your in your demeanor and how you and, and the vibe that you give off mm-hmm. is very even keel. Um, I'm certainly not someone that I'm not very like macho, masculine type of coach. I didn't respond well to it, and the people that I coach they don't seem to respond well to it. Mm-hmm. Um, people want to be respected. They want to be heard. Um, so I, I really believe that a more of a quiet, neutral, empathetic coaching style is, is, is very effective, especially in a sport like triathlon where it is so hard and it's so unpredictable. Like you just have to be steady Eddie mm-hmm. all the time. I haven't asked you this yet as far as uh, it, your coaching. Does it also apply to the nutrition side for your athletes? It does. And nutrition is individual, but there's certain protocols that you can go through as far as calories per hour, fluid per hour, when to use caffeine. Um, so it's not as like you're eating X, Y, Z on this diet. It's more so of uh, what are you putting into your body? How does it help? And things like that, I guess. Yeah. So with my coaching, I do mainly um, like race nutrition. If someone, if it's more of like a daily nutrition, mm-hmm. I would defer that to a nutritionist. And the business side of things, as far as the year performance, like not only are you training these athletes, you have to also have to kind of keep control of the numbers and how are you getting your name out about there. Without a college degree, I'm sure people are wondering, like, how in the world have you been able to be this successful as a businessman? Well, my parents joke that I have a like a PhD in triathlon coaching. <laughs> okay. um, so I've essentially been doing this for 15 years and I've right. been doing it at a high level for 10 years. Um, Going back to the coaches that I've had, um, specifically someone like uh, a name, Brett Sutton, who most, if they're triathletes, would know this name. He has, he's a high school dropout, probably the greatest triathlon coach of all time. Um, He's almost illiterate, but coaching is about reading people. Mm. And it's about, I I think it's about more about feel than it is about the numbers. And if you can get that right, then you can coach well. Um, there's opportunities in triathlon that require a degree and I'm in the process of working towards that, but does a degree make me better coach? Absolutely not. Does making, does being an exercise physiologist make me better coach? Absolutely not. There's some brilliant exercise physiologists who have terrible people skills and they can never connect with their athletes. So it's having a balance of understanding the sport, understanding the physiology, and then having the ability to manage people. I, I firmly believe coaching is people management. And especially in times of like crisis, because when everything's smooth, there's no issue. You can just kind of tick along, everything's fine. But when things happen, how do you, how do you modify? How do you get an athlete to cope? That's Mm -hmm. real coaching. Do you mind if I ask you like what your schedule looks like for the rest of the calendar year 2018, whether it be in coaching or as a competitor? Sure. So for my own schedule, my next priority race is, um, it's ITU Long Course Worlds in Denmark. So that's in mid-July, so I'll do that. And then I will uh, race Ironman Mont-Tremblant in August. Mm. So those are my two big races uh, at the moment. I'm much more, in the past, I would always like plan out a big season and things would happen and then the season would derail. So I'm more like, let's stay present, let's focus on races do the races well, and then move on from those races. What does your individual training look like, you personally, as you go about prepping for that? So I do a lot of volume, a lot of high volume, a lot of intensity. Um, I'd probably train 25 hours a week. Um, And so that's split between five swims, 
five to six rides and then five to six runs and anything anywhere from you know a swim session could be an hour 15 to a bike session could be six seven hours and they probably sometimes can vary in intensity you know one day it all just, varies yeah. uh, i have my own coach uh, i don't like to self-coach do you really I yeah that. so okay. it allows me to switch off so i can prioritize my athletes and then with my training i can just go out and do it take it off and then think about my own coaching. That's nice. Yeah. Um, this is kind of the point of the podcast where I like to ask guests just as far as, okay, do you have any philosophies that you live by or maybe a piece of advice that you can kind of leave people with that, that might help them push forward an obstacle in their life? But I guess with that being said, I also haven't asked you um, just as far as like, what does this type of sport do for you as a person? What do you get out of it? What keeps you coming back? Or maybe if a, a person comes to you and is looking to improve, like, I imagine it's more than, than you just coaching the physical aspect. Like you want to get them to a goal to, a, to achieve a, a certain thing, but also it's going to make them a better person. And I don't know. You can kind of go any which way with that. So to answer your first question, um, and we <laughs> spoke about this at Gretna, was um, kind of a philosophy that I really like is chop wood, carry water. Oh, right. And it's a Zen saying. And the saying is before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. And the way I interpret that is, before you have success, you, you do the work mm-hmm. and you do what is necessary for success. You put, your, you put your head down and you just get it done. That's the chop in the wood part? That's the chop wood, carry water. The enlightenment is success. After you have success, you keep doing what led to success. You don't like, you know, bask in your success and you don't mm. you stop. There's always someone in triathlon, there's always someone faster. There's always someone better. And you can never, if you win a race or you have a, you, you have a breakthrough, you have to keep at it, keep right. at it. And I think that humility and that, um, just that workmanship is something that I really admire and something that I try to keep in my life where, like, I don't tell people how I'm training. I don't tell people, like, you know, what my level is. I always try to just let my actions speak for themselves. And I think that's very much chop wood, carry water. I, I incorporate that into all my athletes. So we're never satisfied with where we are. We, we, we enjoy it, we enjoy the process, we enjoy the work, but they have a great race, it's, it's, back, it's back to the grindstone. And I think that really helps, that, that, that's almost a neutral attitude because it really helps them not get too high or get too low. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then as far as what does the sport, what does coaching mean to me, the success of my athletes uh, means more to me than any success I've ever had in my own racing because it's more the team, the local team, the local squad, the seeing their success, seeing them break through, it's so much more rewarding. It's m- much bigger than myself. And I was a very selfish athlete. I didn't care about other people in the community. Wow. Uh, I did my own thing. Um, I was uptight. Um, and now, maybe it's maturity, going through that process, I really genuinely love it. And I love going on this journey with these people and doing every single thing I can do to get them reach their goals because everyone has these right. goals and whether they're winning whether they're winning Kona or they're or they're just getting a bit faster at a local sprint distance race the meaningness is the same mm-hmm. like what they feel the emotion they feel is the same as a professional as it is with a beginner mm-hmm. and that that's really is incredible about the sport and something that I I see and I prioritize and um and, and why I love coaching. That's awesome. And I'll give you a, a chance here in a, in a second just to kind of how do people find you and, and promote your business here. But I did want to say if you guys like 
what you hear today, feel free to uh, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play by searching Always Lancaster Inspirational Athletes. Last week, we had Alex Reddy, Manheim Township grad. He's now the starting goalkeeper for the University of Denver men's lacrosse team. And then next week, we're going to be chatting with Todd Mealy, um, who's a local high school football coach, formerly Penn Matter, now Lancaster Catholic. Um, he also is a father, he's a teacher, and he's an author. He has a book out about a former uh, Penn State football player from the early 1900s that I actually just started reading. It's pretty fascinating. So Todd's going to stop and kind of talk about how he juggles everything and, and just uh, kind of promote the book a little bit. I think it's really interesting. You guys will really like it. Um, yeah, and, and as far as uh, how people can find you, um, Andrew, just as far as your business, um, where where can people go if they like what they hear and they're interested in it? So they can go to my website. It's uh, yoderperformance.com, and I have all my information there, like my methodology, uh, my email, my number. You can go to that website. Awesome. And uh, by the way, if you guys uh, have any suggestions for future guests on the show, um, feel free to throw me an email, jwalklmpnews.com, or contact me on the Twitter at jwalklmp. Just want to give a shout out to my colleagues, Tyler Heber and Irene Snyder. They are the engineers slash producers of this podcast. Thanks to another colleague, Claudia Esmanshade. She gets this thing online. So thanks to them. Thanks to you guys for listening. Andrew, thanks for uh, sharing your story, man. Thanks, John. Awesome.